0: text that we consider this evening, again, is chapter fourteen. Although in the sermon this evening we'll not be um, focusing on Melchizedek, but on the history that surrounds Melchizedek, who is a very uh, central, has well, a very central place in this history here. <clears throat> but for now, we consider Abram's victory over the kings, beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ. The last time that we considered the history of Abram here, this redemptive covenant history recorded in Genesis, we left off with Lot in Sodom and Abram sojourning by faith in the land of Canaan. You recall Lot's foolish choice. Abram recognizing that there had to be at least some distance between them offers Lot uh, the pastures that Lot would want. Lot lifted up his eyes unto uh, unto the plains of Jordan, lusted after the riches that he might have there, separated himself completely from Abram, and pitched his tent towards Sodom. And that foolish choice we'll see in the sermon this evening would have a very bitter consequence here in Genesis 14. While Lot went away, to the plains of Jordan Abram watching Lot disappear into the distance perhaps felt a sense of loneliness and the reason we suppose that is because right after Lot leaves God comes to Abram with the promise renewing and repeating his promise to Abram of the land and of this great seed that Abram would have and again those promises that God repeats to Lot or to Abram at the end of chapter 13 God never promises out of the blue, but there's always some reason in the history of Abram that is the occasion for God repeating his promise. You see those promises there at chapter 13, verses 14 through 18. God promising, repeating his promise of the land of Canaan. Lot sure had gone to the plains of Jordan, but the whole land of Canaan would be Abram's, and it was his by divine right. And now the spiritual reality of that land of Canaan ultimately, as we read in the book of Hebrews, was Abram inheriting the eternal uh, land of Canaan and the new heavens and the new earth. That's how far that promise there extends. And also God promises to Abram in verse 16 this seed that God will make as the dust of the earth, which again historically would be the people of Israel that would come forth out of Abram's loins. But that was a type, that was a picture of the spiritual seed of Abram, which he would have, namely, everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have Abram sojourning through the land of Canaan. He pitches his tent um, in Hebron, which would be one of the headquarters of his stay in Canaan. And then the kings come into town. We read about those kings at the first verse of chapter 1. These four kings that come marching in from Mesopotamia to really to uh, take vengeance and to punish the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah for defecting from their dominion. Now this is a remarkable history here. And in this history we see Abram, now the general, with his band of 318 men conquering probably the four most powerful kings on the earth at that time. So that in itself is worthy of our consideration, but there's, a, there's a several lessons that we find here in chapter 14. In the first place, we learn the lesson of the bitter consequence of so foolish a choice as lots. That in the first place. In the second place, we also see the lesson of the gospel of preservation, God doing whatever it takes to rescue one of his children caught in the snare of sin, the devil, the world, And in the third place, and we'll consider this at the end of the sermon, this was a covenant victory here over the kingdom of darkness. So now we consider in the third point the this history in the light of Genesis 3, verse 15, and and really the whole history of the world. So let's consider Genesis 14 under the theme Abram's Victory over the kings. Abram's victory over the kings. Noticing in the first place that this was for the preservation of Lot. Noticing in the second place that this was a victory by the power and blessing of God. And noticing in the third place that this was a victory that showed the church's victory over the world. Again, this is not even though it is the history of Abram, it's not simply here uh, to tell us Uh, facts of history regarding this one man totally disconnected from everything else, but this is church history here, our church history in Genesis 14. So let's consider some of that history and what we find right away in chapter 14 is this battle between nine kings going on in the land of Canaan or just outside of the land of Canaan. The combatants in this battle are the five kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zoboam, and Bela, and these four kings that come from the area of Mesopotamia. In the first place, those kings of Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah would be just east of the Dead Sea, what is now called the Dead Sea, which perhaps came into existence as the Salt Sea when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah that's not explicitly recorded in the Bible. Anyway, Sodom and Gomorrah, these five cities, Sodom, Gomorrah, Adam, Zoboam, and Bela, really had an alliance just east of that region surrounding the Dead Sea. Now, these five kings had been made subject to Cadoleomer, we read in verse 4. And for twelve years, these kings of Sodom and all of their uh, kingdoms were under tribute to Cateleomer. Now Cateleomer and all of those kings we read of in, in verse 1, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasar; Cateleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations. Those were kings that, whose kingdoms were around the area of the Tigris and Euphrates River, really the southern region of the Tigris and Euphrates, what we commonly call Mesopotamia, right around Babylon is where these kings came from. And these kings, when they realized that Ketileomer and company, or when Ketileomer realized that Sodom and Gomorrah had rebelled, well, then they came marching into town to take vengeance on that. And that was really the occasion of this great battle. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, who had been under tribute, now decided to stop paying Ketileomer. They rebelled from beneath his rule. Word came to Cateleomer. He gathered the boys and he came down to Canaan to take care of business. That's what happened here. So they came from Mesopotamia. They traveled. If if this is the Sea of Galilee here and this is the Dead Sea, these kings came all the way from Mesopotamia, came down the eastern side of the Jordan River, conquering all, all along the way. They looped into Canaan a little bit. We read of them taking on the the Amorites. We read of them taking on the Amalekites. They went all the way so far down as near the uh, Red Sea, and then they looped around back to Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't have a map in front of us that would be helpful. The point is they're battling Sodom and Gomorrah. And so those kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboam, come marching out to take on Ketelahmer, And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah are utterly defeated. We read of that in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 14. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah were spoiled and plundered for everything that they had. And it is an interesting detail that we find recorded in verse uh, verse 10 that... Where they fought, this vale of Sidom was full of slime pits. And now in the King James Version, it reads this way, And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there, and they that remained fled to the mountain. Now that's just a very interesting historical detail that the Bible furnishes us. These slime pits, in other, in other translations of the Bible, were like tar pits, kind of, like asphalt pits, there in that veil of Sidom, bitumen was, that's what those pits were full of. And it, there may, there's reason to believe that people were falling into those pits in the battle and perishing. Well, however it worked out, whoever remained fled to the mountains and Ceteleomer and all those other kings with him. Spoiled the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, took everything they had, took the people, took the women, took the children, took their goods and went marching back to Mesopotamia. But they had committed a fatal mistake, Cateleum and those kings. And the fatal mistake was that they took Lot, brother of Abram, more accurately Abram's nephew, but even more importantly, child of God. And little did these kings know that they had a child of God in that band that really would spell their downfall. But before we consider that, recognize Lot's position here. Lot had made that foolish choice of pitching his tent towards Sodom, ends up in the city, and now when these kings come marching in, he gets captured. He went to Sodom for earthly gain. They take it all away. They throw him in handcuffs with his family, and they're going to bring him back to Mesopotamia. Maybe they're going to sell him into slavery or something like that. That was a miserable experience for Lot. Really, Lot was caught up in the judgment that God was bringing against Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah is synonymous with judgment. Whenever we hear the word Sodom and Gomorrah, we always think judgment of God against iniquity and wickedness. And when these kings from Mesopotamia came in, and attacked the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, there you feel the rumblings of God's judgment which he was preparing against that wicked city. And that judgment would culminate in the destruction by fire and brimstone. The problem was that Lot, by joining himself so closely to Sodom and Gomorrah, bitterly tasted the judgment that God brought against that wicked city. Now, this was not a a judgment and punishment against Lot, but he had made himself vulnerable by leaving the safety of Abram, made himself vulnerable to feeling the judgments visited upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And now there, already we can apply that history, because there you have the general principle that when a child of God leaves the safety and the shelter of God's church, pitches his tent towards Sodom, joins himself to the world, and lives in that close proximity with all of the world's ungodliness. Well, that child of God makes himself vulnerable to what John Calvin calls the scourge of God upon the wicked. That is, the closer we cozy up to the world, the more vulnerable we become for getting the flack, as it were, of the judgments God visits against the world. And you see that here with Lot. So here we have Lot being taken away back to Mesopotamia. Seemingly, his life as he knew it has ended. Who knows what will happen? But again, those kings of Mesopotamia, Kedalamur and company, had no idea who was in their captive band. This was the nephew of Abram. This was a child of God. And because of that, Cateleomer's utter ruin was certain. Because God will not let one of his children perish, even if that child gets himself into all kinds of trouble and so great and dirty a mess as this, God will not let his child perish. And that's what we see in Genesis 14, the preservation of Lot. Someone who had escaped from the victory of Cateleomer maybe a citizen of Sodom and Gomorrah, apparently he knew who Abram was. He went running away to find Abram. And here comes this fugitive running up to Abram, probably out of breath, and he says, Abram. And he starts telling Abram the history. And Abram here is in Hebron, uh, where he was staying for a while, confederate with these brothers, Mamre, uh, Escol, and Aner, verse 13. Abram's listening to this history, and then the fugitive says these words They took Lot. And when Abram hears those words, a fire must have lit up in his eyes. His expression must have changed. The wheels were in motion for this tremendous victory which God would give unto Abram. Now we find Abram the general. Had he ever lifted up a sword before in his life? Doesn't matter. Here's Abram, the general now, banding, gathering together his 318 servants, and he and these Amorites, with whom he was confederate, set out and chased down Ceteleomer. Regarding those Amorites, three of them are listed there in verse 13, Mamre, Eschol, and Aner. So Abram had some dealings with these men. We're not told exactly whether they, were, whether they believed. But at least this, they had entered into a defense alliance with Abram. And they probably recognized pretty soon that there was something special about Abram and that you didn't want to be against Abram. And so likely, recognizing the special place that Abram occupied, they uh, entered into a league with him So that rather than be destroyed by Abram They would join his side So here now all of these men 318 servants, the Amorite brothers And they chase down Ceteleomer Wow This Gideon's band Going after four of the most powerful kings on earth With their armies Four kings who had just plundered Sodom and Gomorrah Here comes Abram and those kings didn't stand a chance because God was on Abram's side. Abram comes in like, a, like an army general, divides his band, sets on the group at night. They rout him completely. They spoil Ketelamer and everything that he has. And Abram rescues Lot and brings him back. That's a remarkable victory. And to finish off the history briefly, as Abram returns home, two people meet him, the king of Sodom, verse 17. We'll learn about him later. And then this person named Melchizedek who just comes out of the blue in this sacred history. And we'll return to that the next sermon of the series. Now there are two things that we want to consider as regards this rescue of Lot. In the first place, we have the gospel of preservation. The gospel of the preservation of the saints. Now in the history of Lot, there's all kinds of foolishness. We've seen that already. But right along with that, right next to that, you have the gospel of the preservation of the saints, of which Lot is the outstanding example. God would not let Lot perish. God would do whatever it took to rescue his foolish child Lot because God loved Lot. If that meant taking care of four kings and utterly destroying their armies, so be it. If that means taking out the very world power of the day, so be it. God will rescue his people from sin and from the snare of the devil. Here we see that before us in this Old Testament history. And now that's all for our admonition in our instruction these kings from Mesopotamia, Cateleomer and all the rest these were very powerful foes against Lot and against Abram but now would you believe it if I told you that the enemies that we face are more are stronger and more powerful than those kings and they are as the Apostle says in Ephesians 6 we're not wrestling with flesh and blood here in our spiritual warfare but our enemies are stronger We battle principalities. We battle powers. We battle the prince of darkness himself. We battle sin. And now in that combat and in that warfare which we wage, here is the gospel truth that God will never let us perish because God preserves his own no matter what it takes. Abram, Genesis 14 here, calls Lot's brother. So here you have the brother of Lot. Again, more accurately, Lot's Lot's uncle, but the Bible calls him Lot's brother. Now we're not saying that Abram here was explicitly and technically a type of Jesus Christ, but the parallels here are very compelling. Here is a brother of Lot going out to rescue Lot from the grip of that heathen power. And now we have a brother who is not ashamed to call us brethren, we read in Hebrews chapter 2, who is out for our good. And that, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Already having laid down his life on the cross for us, spoiling principalities and powers, we read in Colossians, this is the one who fights for us. Our, Our elder brother, our God and our King, Jesus Christ. And that's why the gospel of preservation is so sure. Not because of we who are involved in this warfare, but sure because of the one who preserves us and the one who holds the reins when it comes to our salvation. In the second place, as regards this remarkable victory for the preservation of Lot, consider Abram's motivation and setting out to rescue his nephew. Why did Abram go? Why did Abram go through all of that work of arming his 318 servants, walking who knows how many miles, taking on four kings? What was motivating him there? And the answer is brotherly love. If Lot hadn't been taken, if Lot remained uh, safe from these heathen kings from Mesopotamia, Abraham wouldn't... He would never have gone out. Rather, he would have praised God for his judgments against the wicked city. But it was the fact that they took Lot. That's what got the wheels going. That's what brought Abram out of his tent there in Hebron and brought him after those kings. It's that relationship that existed between himself and Lot. And there was a blood relationship there, truly. Lot was Abram's nephew, But there were even deeper bonds that existed between Abram and Lot. And those were the bonds of faith. See, they weren't only physical brothers in the biblical sense of that word, which includes nephew. But these were spiritual brothers, and the bonds that tied them together were far deeper even than blood. And when Abram heard that Lot was in trouble, Abram could not but go out to help him. Here is a child of God in the hands of the enemy. He must be delivered. That's why he rolled up the sleeves. That's why he put on his boots. That's why he got on his, put on his general's hat and got into the trenches because of Lot, his brother. And now that, too, is a tremendous moment for us. Would we have done it? Would we have taken the inconvenience of leaving our tent and our tabernacle in Hebron and warring against four kings and their armies? Would we have done it for our brother? Or, we, or would we have said, well, he got himself into this trouble and we'll leave it to him to get himself out? Or would we go and would we get dirty to rescue our brother from sin, from the snare of the devil? That's the application here. Our calling now as so many brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ in exerting ourselves, rolling up our sleeves to help a brother who was caught in the grip of the enemy. That's the spiritual uh, aspect here to this history in Genesis chapter 14. You hear a brother say, or a sister, who's walking in a way of sin, caught in the grip of some temptation. It keeps going back to it, keeps going back. He's in its grip, and you know that. And now you can either say, well, folly on him for having something to do with that in the first place. I'll leave him be. Someone else will take care of him. Or do you show love like Abram showed love for Lot? The kind of love that sacrifices oneself to do good for your brother or for your sister. To take on the foe, to take on sin, and to take on the devil himself for the good of God's child. It's daring to enter the combat. It's easy to be on the sidelines. Not to do anything, to try to let things work itself out. This takes work. But this is what, to what we are called in love for one another. Now, how did Abram do it? How did this pilgrim, whose whole life was mostly taken up with tending to his livestock and pitching his tent here or there, beat four kings? Four kings whose power is evident from the fact that they conquered the cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zoboam. And the answer, of course, is that God gave Abram the victory by his power and by his blessing. And that's the point that Melchizedek teaches us at the end of chapter 14. Melchizedek says, blessed be Abram. And then in verse 20, Melchizedek says, blessed be the most high God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. That's how Abram conquered by the power and by the blessing of God. Nothing else can explain it. From a human perspective, the odds were completely against Abram. Here he is, 318 men, trained servants. Had they ever fought before? And yet here is Abram now in his house doling out the arms, and here they go chasing after these kings and utterly routing them. What possibly could explain that? And the answer is not human strength and not human might. 318. That's just shy more of the Gideon's band that took on the numerous Midianites in the book of Judges. And that history is designed to impress upon us that not by the arm of flesh, but by the power and blessing of God do we conquer and do we gain the victory. And that again is important for the church in the New Testament as well. From a human perspective, the odds are against. From a human perspective, you have this small band of believers, weak and frail people, subject to all manner of infirmities. And who's their foe? The whole world of darkness, the whole world of wickedness, the devil himself, and sin on every side. The odds are against. And yet, the lesson of history and the lesson that the Scriptures teach us is that the church conquers. Do you know how many attempts there have been in the history of the world to squash the church out of existence? How many attempts there have been to muzzle the witness of the church in the world, and yet what has happened? The gates of hell have not prevailed against her, but she has gone forth conquering and to conquer, spoiling principalities, tearing down the kingdom of darkness, snatching God's people out of the grip of the devil. Not because of the church's own might or strength that she has in herself. Not by her own arm of flesh but by the power and the blessing of the same God who gave Abram the victory in Genesis 14. Blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. That expression there, Most High God, Most High is the title now that Melchizedek gives to God. And that title, of course, emphasizes God's transcendence, God's being exalted above above everything. The God who is so high that before him the, the nations of the earth are but as a drop in the bucket. God was on Abram's side. That's why he won. Melchizedek also describes God as the possessor of heaven and earth, verse 19. That is the one who founded the heavens and the earth. And that too, not simply for poetic effect, But that description at the end of verse 19 points out that Jehovah God is the one true and living God. And in the Old Testament, that title, maker of the heavens and the earth, is always attributed to God so as to distinguish Him from all of the false gods and idols of the heathen. The gods of the heathen are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So that shows who this God is. So when Abram there with his small band was fighting against these kings, God was fighting there. God was at war with these heathen enemies who had taken one of his children. And that's why Abram won, because the Lord was on his side. And God's blessing was upon Abram. That too is important to realize. Remember what God said already at the beginning, Genesis chapter 12. Abram, I will bless you. Abram, my blessing is upon you. I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse them that curse thee. Because of the fact that God's blessing was upon Abram, from that perspective, he was invincible. These kings could not touch him because God's blessing was upon him. You couldn't conquer him. He could have taken on the whole world, and he would have won because God was blessing him, and God was on his side. That blessing that God speaks to Abram in chapter 12 is not simply a bare word that bounced off of Abram's ears. But God's blessing in Scripture is a power whereby God lifts up and whereby God extols and exalts His children. And here you have that in Genesis 14. God exalting Abram over his foe by that powerful blessing. To say it a different way, the explanation for Abram's victory here is that God had positioned Abram for the victory by choosing Abram and by bringing Abram into his covenant and by making Abram his child. Therefore, Abram won because God was on his side. Now you may say that with regard to the church of the New Testament as well, we are invincible. We cannot be conquered. Sure, they may kill our body. And we may die according to our body, but they cannot conquer us. They cannot overcome us. They cannot defeat us because God, the same God, is on our side. That too is implied in the gospel of preservation, the preservation of the saints. We have the same God, the same position, the same Christ, the same blessing as Abram had. And that's the explanation for every victory that we accomplish over our spiritual fall. Abram, of course, was a man who walked and who lived by faith. And Abram battled by faith and obtained the victory by faith as well. That, too, we want to consider, and that, too, is rich in application for us who continue to battle in a different way now, not against foes of flesh and blood with physical swords, but against our spiritual enemies. But now consider Abram and the faith So manifested in the history of this patriarch. Now we know that Abram had his moments of weakness, even his moments of unbelief. Not here. Here you see Abram battling with the boldness and the fearlessness of faith. Contrast what we see here in Genesis 14 with what we saw of Abram when he was going down into Egypt. When Abram was going down into Egypt, do you remember that history? He was scared. He was worried. He was fretting. What are these Egyptians going to do to Sarah? Someone's going to take her to be their wife. And so he ends up telling lies out of fright against the Egyptians. You don't detect one speck of that fear and of that that being scared here in Genesis 14. But it's the exact opposite. Here you have Abram saying, as the psalmist does in the Psalms, The Lord is on my side. I shall not fear. What can man do to me? What can these four kings do to me? What boldness and what confidence? He dares to take on four, the most powerful kings and their armies on earth. This man, Abram, battling and going out by faith. That is, Abram, before he even set foot out of Hebram, was firmly persuaded that the victory was his. There was no doubt in his mind when he left his tabernacle that he was going to come back as the spoiler with goods and with people and with a a victory over these kings from Mesopotamia. It's that firm persuasion with which Abram battled and he obtained the victory by faith. Now let's ask ourselves the question, when we battle, and we do battle, you battle every day the moment you roll out of bed, when you battle against sin, Are we battling in a believing way? That is, are we believing when we fight our enemies? When I say that, I mean, are we firmly persuaded when we battle against this besetting sin, when we go to war against our old man of sin, against the evil of the world, against the devil himself, are we convinced that the victory is ours? And that these enemies, no matter how great they be, they are but bread for us. Because God is on our side. That's how God calls us to battle. Not with uncertainty as to the outcome. But we go in strong. We go in confident. And yes, there will be pain, there will be struggle. But be persuaded with regard to your own particular besetting sins and the the temptations that surround you. Be persuaded that the victory is yours. Our enemies are bred for us. That's what Joshua said to Israel and to the other spies when they, fearing, didn't want to go up into the land. He said, they'd be bread for us. I don't care how big those giants are. I don't care how many people there are. Bred. And there, too, you see that, that confidence of faith expressing itself against the whole world, if need be. The fact that Abram gained this victory by the power and by the blessing of God means that at the end of the day, the glory goes to God for this victory. You see that at the end of chapter 14, that the glory goes to God. After Melchizedek blessed Abram, the king of Sodom came up to Abram and offered Abram all of the goods that Abram had plundered from those heathen kings. Ketalim, or And you get the sense that the king of Sodom was saying, in a way, you earned it. You deserve this. You can have it all. Just give me the persons. But Abram, he, he's, so, he's so careful. He says, no, 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 no. I will not take even the, the strap on a sandal for myself. In fact, Abram swore to God that he would not take one thing that he had plundered by his victory over those kings. He gives the reason at the end in verse 23, Lest thou, king of Sodom, shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. Abram wanted to make it very clear to everyone that the reason that he was what he was and the reason that he had that what he had is purely because of jehovah his god he wanted that witness to be the witness that was left from this battle and from his whole time in canaan but now let's expand that a little bit abram didn't only want everyone to know that it was god who made him rich but Abram here is giving all of the glory and all of the credit for everything to God. It's like he's saying to the king of Sodom, listen, the only reason I won, the only reason for this victory, the only reason that I am what I am is because of God who blessed me. And that's that confession of faith here. He says the name Jehovah right in the face of this king of Sodom, making very clear that this God is God alone and this God is on my side. Faith, giving glory, giving the credit to the only true God. And that's what we saw this morning as well with regard to justification. Faith gives all the credit to God. So here in Genesis chapter 14. This victory here shows the church's victory over the world. Now, we've already been saying that. We've already explained that in certain respects, but now we want to consider the big picture here. What is going on in Genesis chapter 14? And the big picture is church versus the world, church versus the kingdom of darkness, and the church gaining the victory. And the reason that we make that point is because of who the combatants were in this battle between Abram and the kings of Mesopotamia. The first thing we read about these kings in chapter 14, verse 1, is we read of Amraphel, king of Shinar. Now the last time that we heard of Shinar in the book of Genesis was the Shinar that was the plain where the wicked tried to build the tower of Babel and establish there that ungodly anti-Christian kingdom in the plains of Shinar. If we go back farther, will we find that word Shinar earlier in Genesis? When it comes to Nimrod, who established his kingdom first at Babel, at Babylon, in the plain of Shinar. Now all of those expressions, Nimrod, power of Babel, what does that remind us of? And it reminds us of the kingdom of darkness. The world power that, try, that tries to vaunt itself over and against the one true God. And from a consideration of that now, we can these kings here represent the kingdom of darkness that is opposed, antithetically opposed, to the cause of God's kingdom in the world. And now Abram. Who's Abram? Well, Abram is the father of the covenant. Abram represents here in this history the father of all believers. He is representative of the church in the world, spoiling and conquering against these ungodly foes. And now when we put all of that together, we see that there is reason to see this war as really a Genesis 3.15 war between the seed of the woman and between the seed of the serpent. That enmity which God established already in the Garden of Eden, which has coursed throughout human history. Here it is in Genesis 14. Seed of the woman, Abram, representing the church over and against the seed of the serpent, these heathen kings from Mesopotamia. One commentator says this. This was the first time this battle here in Genesis 14, at least in scripture history, that the world kingdom as founded by Nimrod was brought into contact with the people of God. Now it begins. And that contact and that warfare would continue throughout Israel's history. The Assyrians would come, the Babylonians would come, representing now the whole world, which launches itself against the church and against the cause of God's kingdom. Abram's victory, therefore, This tremendous victory against these four kings shows us and reveals to us the victory that the church has over and against the world, that the seed of the woman has against the seed of the serpent. Not only a a victory, but a routing, a thorough spoiling and plundering of the kingdom of darkness. That's the truth of the ages. That's the truth of church history. Of course there are times when things from a human perspective look very dim for God's people in the world. When a man like Elijah says to God, I'm the only one left. In the days of of darkness prior to the Reformation, sure, there are moments when it looks very dark for the church, but she always gains the victory because of the seed of the woman who is her king, namely the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The right man is on our side. We sing in that great anthem, a mighty fortress is our God, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why the church has the victory. Her enemies, stronger than even these kings, principalities and powers. Her weapons, not the arm of flesh, but she arms herself with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And that sword goes forth valiantly. How many hearts hasn't that sword conquered and plucked right up out of the kingdom of darkness and brought them into God's marvelous light. How many stratagems and devices of Satan has not that word torn down as the walls of the kingdom of God expand over the earth, spiritually speaking, until that day when the Son of Man shall come on the clouds of glory and our victory at last shall be complete. That's the hope that we have. We battle now, strenuously resisting our foes, sin, the devil, and the whole wicked world. But the victory is ours, and the victory shall be ours perfectly when our Lord and our great King comes again. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for this history which Thou hast revealed to us on the pages of Thy Word and for the marvelous things which it teaches us, things that concern our Lord Jesus Christ and us thy people as we battle in the midst of this world. Father, send us away in the week to come with a firm persuasion that thou art on our side. What shall we fear? What can man do unto us when the Lord Jesus Christ has taken up our cause and goes forth conquering and to conquer? Bless us, by consideration of these things, strengthen our faith and lead us in the week to come in this mortal combat which we wage. Forgive our sins and keep sin far from us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us sing together Psalm number 317. 317, which has those lovely words in verse 2, The Lord with me I will not fear, though human might oppose. Let's sing stanzas 1, 2, and 3 of 317. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen.